Well, the essence of the good news of Jesus is the cross. Only by his death in our place may we have life. As John's gospel slowly develops, it is life that is eternal. It is life that is overflowing. And it is life with ultimate purpose. Now, only by faith in him can anyone cross over from death to life. That is to have his or her dead spirit brought to life and be more than two-thirds of a person. Because we are all born with a body and a soul and also a nature that is bent towards sin. In other words, our spirit is dead and we are powerless to bring it to life. But here is the good news. Because God sent his eternal spirit son to be the perfect man some 2,000 years ago. He sent him, according to scripture, when the fullness of time had come to be the sacrifice for the sins of whoever comes to him in humble, dependent faith of surrendered obedience to receive his gracious gift of forgiveness of sins so as to do the good work prepared already by God to do in him. Let me say that again. Who is the one who may have life? Whoever will come to him in humble, dependent faith of obedience to receive his gracious gift of forgiveness of sins so as to do the good work God prepared for him or her to do. That's Ephesians chapter 2. He sacrificed himself in love. As it says in John's Gospel at the beginning of the upper room, chapter 13, verse 1, It says, now, before the Passover, Jesus, knowing his hour, had come to depart to the Father, having loved his own in the world, he loved them to the end. To the end. So the cross is at the heart of a relationship with God. By Jesus' willing giving of his body and his life blood. For whoever takes up his or her cross, sinners with dead spirits can be transformed into disciples of Jesus with living spirits filled with the Holy Spirit. And because we are creatures of habit, Jesus offered a sacrament to do as often as, 1 Corinthians. Now, the Eucharist 
or communion is to become a life-changing habit that all disciples of Jesus must practice frequently. And today's passage tells us the origin of communion and what it is. So let's mine deeply into the eternal word of God to dig out gold. First of all, Jesus directs his disciples to prepare the Passover. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples, they come to Jesus, and he gives them details about keeping the Passover. They said, where do you want that we should make ready for you to eat the Passover? So two of the seven feasts that all Israelites and Jews practice every year, the first one was Passover. And they sacrificed a lamb, putting its blood on the doors of their houses on the day of the full moon of the first month of spring when their year began in order to remember how Yahweh passed over their houses when he killed the firstborn of Egypt. And then on Passover and the seven days which followed called unleavened bread. They had and ate no leaven. There was no leaven even present in their houses. They cleaned them out. And he said, go to the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher is saying, my season is near. There are two words for time in the biblical New Testament language. This one means a period of time of no definite length that is part of the special purpose of God's plan. It's kairos time or season time. The other kind of time is chronological time, seconds, minutes, hours. That's the one we're more familiar with. But he says, my season is here. And to thee, you say to this certain man, I am keeping the Passover with my disciples. So the disciples did just as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, he had given them a task. They were co-laborers with Jesus for this Passover, and then they made ready the Passover. So this is the third time in this first paragraph that we have the term the Passover. And this is used for the dinner of the exodus of their slavery from Egypt. And they fulfilled this for hundreds of years until Jesus came. But after the Holy Spirit created the church at Pentecost, there is a new Passover for the church. And that Passover is focused on the Savior King, the Messiah Christ. In fact, Paul wrote to churches in Corinth, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And you can look it up. Secondly, we're told that when evening came, as they were eating, he said, one of them would give him over. So Jesus said, truly, 
one of you will give me over. And they were grieved. And each one of the disciples asked him, me, Lord? Is it me? So it says, having become late, it was evening and beyond, he was reclining with the twelve. Well, what does this mean? First century tables weren't, you know, some three feet off of the floor. The table was actually spread at floor level. So, so they would sit down and they would lean on their left elbows and then they would be eating with their right hands. That's what it means to be reclining at the table. And Luke uses a verb that they had been reclining for an extended period of time. What does that mean? The Passover itself is now over. And as they were finishing their eating, he said, truth. I'm saying to you, one of you will give me over. What is used here is a Hebrew noun transliterated. We say amen in English, it's amen in Hebrew. And it means this is true. Now, betray is one way to translate what Jesus is talking about here. But the word is literally to give over. He's being given over. You see, Jesus, who is the lamb who takes away sin, he was given over on Passover. And then we're told, being greatly grieved, they began to say, each one to him, is it not me, Lord? So, they're saying, Lord, each one is fully acknowledging Jesus is the supreme sovereign Lord of all, all that he created. He is God himself. And each one is in earnest saying, not I. I who am handing over you, Lord. So, we have to now realize that we too must confess, confess that we have a part in the giving over of the Lord of all to his death. And then Jesus says, I must go as it is written about me. But woe to the man giving me over. And Jesus says, not me, Rabbi. He says, he who has dipped his hand with me in the bowl, that's the one who will give me over. Indeed, the Son of Man is going, just as it is written concerning him. Two chapters that are important. One is in Isaiah. And it says, all we as sheep have gone astray. And the Lord gave him over for our sins. Because his soul was given over to death, he was given over because of our iniquities. And then also read Psalm 22. It's an extended description 
given to David by inspiration some thousand years before the crucifixion. And in the three synoptic gospels, this psalm is referenced three times pertaining to the crucifixion. And he says, but woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is being given over. It would have been good to him if he had not been born. Now this is about more than just Judas in Greek or Judah in Hebrew, which actually means pray. This is about woe to God's rebellious people throughout history. Over and over again, the prophets, and I've given you a passage in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. They had to describe how Yahweh fulfilled and had to fulfill his covenant curses of wrath poured out on his people for disobedience. And you can look this up in both Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And then Judas, who was giving him over, he had already turned him over, said, not me, rabbi. And this is very significant. This shows his rebellion. He refuses to fully acknowledge that Jesus is the supreme sovereign Lord of all, is God himself. He's calling him merely a great man. The Hebrew word rab means great. But before we get too hard on Judas for considering Jesus nothing more than a great man. Let us remember that many Americans today think of Jesus in this way. They will quote his teachings and they'll say, oh, what a great man and teacher he was. But they stop short of acknowledging him as the Lord, as the creator, as the redeemer, as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But you see, Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sins of people. He was given over on Passover. And Jesus says to him, the cryptic English translation is, thou hast spoken. What he's really saying is he's condemning him here. He said, you yourself have said, you are the one handing me over. So thirdly, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and cup and commanded them to eat and drink, saying, this is my body, and this is my blood of the covenant. So after blessing bread, he broke it, and he gave it to them, to the disciples, and he blessed it. And this word blessed is the verb eulageo, which means literally to give a good word. It's a verb. We're all familiar with the noun. It's an English word now. It's eulogy. What is said almost all the time at a memorial service at a funeral for the departed? One or more people who knew him or her gets up and gives a eulogy, speaks a good word about the one who has died. That's what Jesus is doing here. And then he says, take and eat. This is my 
body. And this is maybe one of the most significant words in the gospel. You need to understand something. Both languages in which scripture was written oftentimes don't use the word is. I could tell you a personal story about a basic writing class where the teacher said I didn't use enough verbs. And I said, I got the word is everywhere. And she said to me, that's just an equation. So in scripture, when the word is, that verb is specifically used, it's significant. And Jesus said this, referring to the bread, it is, is my body. We need to pay attention. And then after giving thanks for the cup, he gave it to them saying, all of you drink because this is my blood of the covenant poured out for the remission, the forgiveness of sins. So having the cup now, the cup of the wine, the fruit of the grape, he gave thanks and he gave it to them. Now the word for giving thanks is eucharisto, which means to give grace. And grace is thanksgiving or gratitude. And the noun Eucharist, again, is part of our English language. It's a synonym for communion. And then saying, all of you drink from it because this is the blood of the covenant. Again, Jesus is emphatically saying, not only is this the blood, this is my blood. This cup is my blood. And I think it's clear that Jesus is saying the Eucharist is a miracle because the bread and the cup are somehow transformed by God into Jesus' body and blood. Now just to give you something about church doctrine and practice and theology, there are four views of what communion or Eucharist is. The first is transubstantiation. And what it says, in essence, though the chemical composition of the bread and the juice, the grape juice, while it remains what it is, it is also somehow miraculously transformed into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. The second one is consubstantiation, which is what Luther believed and taught. He said that although it's not physically itself transformed, somehow the real body and blood of Jesus are over it, under it, and around it. That's consubstantiation. Somewhat a little bit less than that is the third one, which is the basic Reformation or Protestant view that somehow the, the, the bread and the juice become spiritually the body and the blood. And then there is a fourth view which many Protestant churches believe today. They treat it like the Passover, like when the Jews do the Passover. It's a remembrance. It's a memorial of what Jesus did for us on the cross. These are the four views.
that are accepted by Christians around the world, one of those four. But also, pay attention, Jesus said his blood is the new covenant. And Yahweh spoke this through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel and with Judah. And if you read Hebrews, which is a very difficult book to really understand what's going on there, but in Hebrews 8 it says clearly that the new covenant of Jesus is better than the old covenant. And they quote Jeremiah. The writer quotes Jeremiah there. And then he says, this covenant concerning many, the blood, the blood of this covenant, it's being poured out into forgiveness of sins. Last week we heard that very phrase used by Jesus himself at the end of the day on Easter Sunday when he uh, appeared to the disciples after the two men on the road to Emmaus had hustled back to Jerusalem. And he says, you shall preach and proclaim the forgiveness of sins. What I have done into forgiveness of sins. Luke 24. And we must understand this, people. Jesus has done something so superior to the old covenant and what happened at the exodus out of Egypt. To be set free from spiritual slavery to sin is much better than merely being physically set free. If we're physically set free, our spirits may not be free. What Jesus is doing here is amazing, and he is transforming Passover into the actual eating of his body and the drinking of his blood. And then he concludes by saying, he will not drink of the fruit of the vine until his father's kingdom. And then they sang a hymn and went to the Mount of Olives. This is an appropriate conclusion to the giving of communion, a, a, a taking forward and transforming of Passover. According to the rabbinic writings from this time, the devout Jews sang Psalm 118, a messianic psalm. And again, I urge you to look it up and read it sometime this week. In my almost 19 years, how 18 and a half years, I preached Psalm 118 three times. I won't preach it now. We're near the end. And then he's talking about going to the Mount of Olives. So just twice in this section, Jesus is speaking of the fruit of the land flowing with milk and honey that God had given his word that Abraham's descendants would possess eternally. So he's talking about the fulfillment, the fruit of the grape, the olive also. But remember, Jesus said in his introductory inaugural address, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, I fulfilled all scripture, everything of what we call the Old Testament. Now for now, as often as we do communion, Jesus is present in the bread and in 
the cup. And again, I recommend it's heavy reading, but John chapter 6. And remember, Jesus angered all the Pharisees when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. In fact, there are writings of pagans where they would put down Christians for practicing cannibalism in secret because they were eating of a body and drinking blood. But Jesus transformed Passover into eating his body and drinking his blood. So let's wrap this long passage up. After Jesus directed his disciples to prepare the Passover, while reclining with them, he spoke truth that one of them would hand him over as it has been written. In being deeply grieved, each one said, it's not I, Lord. And Jesus responded, woe to the man through whom the Son of Man is given over. It would be good if he had not been born. And Judas said, it's not I, Rabbi. He refused to acknowledge Jesus in his fullness. And Jesus said to him, you said it. Your own words have condemned you. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, this is my body. Take and eat. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them and says, all of you drink from it because this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many into forgiveness of sins. Thank God for that. And he concluded saying, I will not drink of the fruit until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. But for now, we can take the body of Christ and the blood of Christ into us to sustain us. And as God continues his work of transforming us individually and together into the body of his son, this is a sacrament that he has given us. Jesus transformed Passover into eating his body and drinking his blood.